The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. We are the Rebels. Elder P, AJ is here, and somehow Nate didn't get stoned, so he's still with <laughs> us. He didn't get uh, torn apart as a heretic. Nope. Yet. And I didn't get sent down to the miners. I'm still here. Yeah, still right? here. Still, still here. here. We haven't done the dunking contest yet, but uh, <laughs> we will. We will. But I made him take his hat off. <laughs> I just did it. We are the Rebels, and we are here today to talk more weird stuff. More weird stuff. Yeah, so uh, last week, obviously, we laid the foundation. We're just going to jump right into it because last week's episode ended up being a lot longer than we thought. So uh, let's just jump right into it because we all love talking about this stuff. Last week, we laid the foundation that God created the world and he created in the heavens a divine council. It's talked about lots of places in scripture, probably most explicitly in Psalm 89, 82, but it's talked about in lots of different places. Uh, in fact, there's places in like the historical books and Kings and Chronicles where you actually see, you get a glimpse into the throne room where God is actually taking counsel on how are we going to kill this king? How are we going to, you know, and he actually listens to his divine counsel. So it's interesting. But what we want to talk about is we want to take the foundation that we laid last time. So if you are coming to this episode and you didn't listen last week to our foundational episode on... Stop on biblical cosmology and all that kind of stuff. Go and listen to that because we're making some assumptions here and we're not going to take the time to caveat it every time. We talked about Jonathan Kahn's book, The Return of the Gods. And in that book, we said we like the concept of it, but there's lots that we disagree with. We're going to be taking some concepts from that book, but we're going to kind of make them our own. So I just want to acknowledge that we're taking some of those concepts. We disagree with him on some areas, but we're very thankful for some areas of the book. So some of what you're going to hear is what we learned through that book, but some of it is our own thoughts as we sort of, I would say, tweaked and and applied better theology to uh, some of Khan's concepts. Is that fair? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so the text that I wanted to go to, and it's a longer text, so I don't want to read the whole thing, but I would encourage the listeners, and if you're at home, a lot of you listen in the car and stuff like that, so you won't be able to do this, but if you happen to be listening at home and you have your Bibles and you can just pause the episode and read it, I would encourage you to read 2 Kings 23. Oh, you should Um, just have that memorized. Yeah, you should, yeah. What, are you even a Christian, bro? <laughs> um, do, do you even scripture, man? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so in 2 Kings 23, it talks about when King Josiah begins to make reforms. And so when King Josiah takes the throne, there's been two generations of pretty wicked kings. And Josiah, it says, is a, is a good and godly king, and he comes in with all kinds of zeal. He brings Israel back into covenant with God. The high priest at the time was a guy named Hilkiah, and Hilkiah, get this, so Josiah becomes the king after two generations of pretty wicked rule in Israel. And uh, Josiah comes, and Hilkiah finds the book of law. 
What were the high priests doing if they didn't have the law, right? He finds the book of law and then he brings it back. And the implication here is that he uses it to instruct young Josiah. And then in hearing the book of the law, Josiah begins to go out on his, uh, on his uh, reforming. So I'll just pick it up in verse four. It says, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now just a pause there. So notice here that there were trinkets of worship that were in God's house. <laughs> that Josiah found that were for Baal, were for Asherah, and were for, it says, the hosts of heaven. Now, last time we talked about how when God created, he put the hosts in the skies to rule over the heavens. There's actually a really great essay, The Celestials and Theophanies. It's written by uh, Doug Wilson, and it's in the book, The Forgotten Heavens. And it talks about this whole idea that the scripture actually uses the term star, host, and celestials interchangeably, that stars are I think about, is it Eustace in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader? When he's having a conversation with Edmund and Edmund is like talking to the star Eustace, a retired star, and he says, you know, in our world, uh, stars are just uh, big balls of fire and gas. And Eustace kind of says, even in your world, that's what a star is made of, not what a star is. And so I think C.S. Lewis had this understanding that in scripture, stars are angels, demons, demons are stars, but they're also these things that are placed in the sky. And so So anyway, all that to say that there were these trinkets of worship for these false gods. And then he goes down. He also pulls out some stuff for Moloch. So it talks about uh, Baal, Asheroth, Chemosh, Milcom, and Asherim, and what's the other? Oh, and Moloch. So these are all the gods that are named that Josiah ends up pulling places of worship down and he kind of goes to war. So Reformation in Josiah's day looks like tearing down the high places of these gods that Israel had gone after. And so I say that simply to say one of the big ideas that we talked about in the last podcast was that God created the world and there are these lesser gods. And one of the big things that we tried to convince people of is that when it talks about the gods of the pagan nations and the false gods, it's actually talking about real beings, celestial beings, whether you want to call them angels or demons. The idea is angel isn't a teleological term. It's actually a term for an office. An angel is a messenger. So it's a celestial who is running an errand for God, whereas a demon is one of these celestials that is not running messages for God, is actually working against the plans and the purposes and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. So you have these lesser gods. And what we want to do is kind of paint a picture of what it looks like to believe that some of the pagan gods of mythology and that are named in scripture and other mythologies are real beings. So that's kind of where we want to go with this episode. And let's start, I guess, maybe with the watchers. So what we would say is in Genesis chapter 6, you get a picture of these celestials who come down. It says, go into the daughters of man, create Nephilim children. And that's the reason that God flooded the earth. So Jordan, just say something really controversial right off the bat. Who are Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades? They are members of God's divine council. See, doesn't that sound like totally heretical? Yeah. But I don't think it is. It's crazy, but I mean... (laughs) 
It's interesting because, well, Khan, which we'll probably get into, he traces how different areas within like Mesopotamia and Greek and Roman, they had different names for these different beings, but they're all referring to, and you can trace it, the same being. Yeah. So Zeus, Baal, Ishtar, Asherah, Asherah, which is Venus, Aphrodite. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of Moloch, which is likely Hades, which is Mephisto, various other gods. And so it's interesting. So when you think through, and I think this is just one of those paradigm shifts that many hours in my office have been spent with Jordan and Chris and I talking through this idea that the Odins and the Thors, right, and the, the Ares and Aphrodite and all of these various pagan gods I don't think are just figments of people's imagination, but these are the words that were given to the celestial beings that oversaw the jurisdiction of the pagan nations because of Deuteronomy 32 and the divvying up of the nations. Fair? Easy. Easy peasy. (laughs) So to simplify that, we're basically saying that pagan religions aren't all new things. They're borrowed off the Christian worldview and perverted, basically. That's right, yeah. So we would say that whenever you have a demon that's in charge of a pagan nation, demons are not creators. They're not creative enough to come up with origin stories outside of the true origin stories. And so if you look at some of the mythology, it's, it's very interesting. Most pagan mythologies start with a watery world, just a big, giant, watery world. Well, why? Because they're coming out of the Noahic flood. It's interesting how many of the, like, I'm specifically thinking Norse and and the Greek, how many of their stories are the story of the god leaves and comes down and mixes with a human. Totally. And then creates like a... promiscuous, let's be honest. And creates like a half-breed god that rages again. Like, it's like there's there's tons of cool stuff when you start thinking about that. So I don't think he's a heretic yet. Um, (laughs) Yeah, jump in if you want to there. I was just going to say, you you see that same idea in creation narratives of like the world and what it's made up. Yep. The firmaments and the the foundations of the world and the place of the dead being below the earth. Like to your point, these demonic beings, they don't create anything new. They just pervert what the Bible actually teaches. Yeah, that's right. Starting with the watchers. So it's, it's actually really interesting and you can get down. So this might be a bit of a shotgun episode while we wait for people to start sending us what they want us to specifically talk about. But if you think through some of the mythology of, let's just start with Greek mythology, right? So in Greek mythology, you have Atlantis, which is a city-state that Poseidon has jurisdiction over and is ruled by five sets of twins that Poseidon had, twin half-human, half-gods. So we would call them Nephilim, right? And he had five sets of twin boys who those 10 half-god, half-people, half, yeah, half-god, half-human ruled over Atlantis. And so when you look at that mythology, what we would just kind of say is it is absolutely possible that in a pre-flood world, when we only get four verses of history in the Bible, Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4, when it talks about the sons of God coming down and going into the daughters of men and creating these Nephilim, that it is entirely possible that these Nephilim children of the celestial, the lesser God, Poseidon, he came down, he picked a human wife, had 10 Nephilim children who ruled over this city-state. And like when you just think about that, it's just mind-boggling to start to think like, wow, so the pre-flood world really could have looked a whole lot more like ancient Greek and Greek mythology and Lord of the Rings than we have. And truth be told, I mean, this is where we're going to start to navigate down the rabbit hole. 
there's a whole lot of just go through old newspapers, go through old clippings, just Google these things. Actually, maybe duck, duck, go them because it'll be a little less suppressed. Even in Canada and America, there have been plenty of giant bones found all throughout our continent. And many of them, there's reputable newspapers that talk about the Smithsonian confirming the remains of giants found everywhere from Nebraska to BC up in what's now called Nineveh. It's, it's crazy. Shaq's a giant. Like we just said, like, <laughs> but not the like, same kind of giant. Like, dude's huge. I'm just, uh, I have no idea how to respond to that. So, um, <laughs> so Atlantis, so the mythology of Atlantis then would be a city that was glorious that has been buried in the flood. So, right. so, so it's, it's interesting that you say that because like, where would we have come up with that? Because that's not one of those things that's passed down. Like, even as a child, I heard stories about Atlantis. And so it's just like one of those things. That's, it's interesting because it's a fairy tale or whatever you want to call it. But it's like it's but that it's been passed down for generations, this idea of the, of these things. Yeah. So interestingly, in some of Plato's writing, he goes and he's talking to a, an Egyptian priest who gives him a history of this great city of Atlantis. And it's not in any of Plato's writing that's fictional. Like this is just historical prose that he's writing. And this priest gives him the history that was passed down to the Egyptians. And if we want to talk about an ancient civilization, I mean, Egypt is right there, right? And according to their history, yeah, it was this great city-state that was swallowed up in water within 24 hours. Every single one of them was destroyed. And you're like, well, where else does that come from? And if you start looking at mythologies around the world and various different religions, there's actually a really great series on Netflix by a guy named Graham Hancock. Side note, Graham Hancock hates Christians and hates Christianity and hates the God of the Bible. So take that for what it's worth. But it's interesting that this guy who hates Christianity, his whole premise is that the evolutionary world history that we are given, that's the general consensus of historians and archaeologists in the world, is deadly wrong and that there's some sort of conspiracy cover-up because we don't want to admit that we had highly technologically advanced ancestors who lived thousands of years ago before a worldwide flood destroyed their civilization. This is a non-Christian who's taking that from every— it seems like he he legitimizes every other world religion and, and mythology except the Bible, but that's his big thing. And he goes through even some of the Native American myths. So get this. Just blow your mind for a second, Chris. In the North American indigenous mythology, they learned agriculture, building, they learned the science of building pyramids and the science of doing horticulture and all kinds of crossbreeding of seeds and animal husbandry. According to their own legends, they learned all these things from serpentine beings, giants, who came to them after a worldwide flood and exchanged this forbidden knowledge for worship. So these are the mythologies of the Native Canadian and Native American people and many tribes in South America and Africa. There's this common ancestry theme of this serpentine being. They all seem to be serpents, like it's crazy. And they come and they exchange. So again, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a world that God divvied up according to the number of sons of God. And these sons of God, if they are anything like Lucifer who fell in the garden, were serpentine. They were dragons. They were whatever. And they come and exchange for worship, right? We know that these beings have wanted to be worshiped. And they come and exchange civilization for worship. And that's a story that, that stretches in all kinds of different mythologies around the world. 
And so again, if you look at that, not in a materialistic mindset, but say, okay, obviously they don't have the true revelation from God, but what is it that they're grasping at some truth, even though they're grasping through it blindly without the word of God? But it fits into a Christian worldview. It fits into the worldview that we're espousing that I think we helped lay the foundation for in scripture last week. And that would kind of explain why we find hieroglyphics and stuff like that that look like aliens went to those cultures before. Like, I don't believe that, but I mean, I've been in conversations with people who that's what they actually think to explain away the fact that some cultures, how they did things like split mixed seeds and things like that, that shouldn't they shouldn't have been able to figure out on their own kind of thing. Yep. But they thought aliens had brought them. Like, I think that's the premise of one of the Indiana Jones movies, too. Like, it's like the aliens. Well, it's interesting. If you've ever watched the movie Expelled, where, have you guys seen that? It's Ben Stein, who's a Jew, and he takes on Richard Dawkins, and he does a little debate with Richard Dawkins about creation versus evolution. I mean, Ben Stein's a pretty smart guy, and he's into the whole intelligent design thing, which obviously we would say biblical narrative of creation is the right one. But Ben Stein basically gets Richard Dawkins to admit that based on the probability of the ability of life spontaneously coming from non-life, on film, Ben Stein has Richard Dawkins admit that what he believes is that aliens seeded Earth with the building blocks of life so that life could arise on Earth, because he recognizes that even the 15 billion years that he believes the Earth has been around for isn't enough time for life to arise from non-life. It's called panspermia, is the idea that life was seeded on Earth by higher intelligent beings, which if you think about it, like, is just such a cop-out. It's like, so you believe in a higher power as long as it's not a divine higher power. Like, you're an idiot, Dawkins, but, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, you're talking about how people believe that. Believe about aliens. Yeah. I went with Indiana Jones, and you're talking about like an essay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple passages that I think are pertinent for us to understand, because the question then becomes, okay, so these sons of God came down, Poseidon, you know, Zeus, whatever names they go by, and they they created Nephilim offspring. So where are those gods now? Is that what we're talking about has returned? And this is where I think Jonathan Kahn goes off his rockers a little bit, because I think biblically speaking, we would have to say that those divine beings are actually in chains in the middle of the earth. And here's why I say that. So if you look at the book of Jude, it's interesting. So Jude is all about false teaching in the church and kind of guarding yourself against those who want to do you harm. And in Jude verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgments of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." And then he goes on, verse 14 then says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So there's a context here. Jude is talking about those who would pervert God's design. But it's interesting that what he's talking about in terms of being kept in eternal chains, he's comparing the sin of, in Sodom and Gomorrah to a celestial 
sin of sexual immorality, right? He says these angels that did not keep their proper office, these are the ones that we're talking about in Genesis chapter 6, who came down from heaven and mixed and mingled with the daughters of man. It says they kept in eternal chains. But it's interesting, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. Well, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It wasn't just sexual immorality. It was actually homosexual sexual immorality. And it says, and pursued unnatural desire. So in the same way that the men of Sodom went after men, and interestingly, in Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't just men going after men, it was actually men going after male angels. You remember that? The angels came to visit Lot and his family to the point where Lot actually said, here, take my daughters, which isn't a good and godly thing for him to have done. But he recognized that this mob that was going to kill them all and have their way, it would have been better for them in in Lot's mind, in Lot's mind, I'm not advocating for this. In Lot's mind, it would have been better for them to violate his own daughters than what they wanted to do to these male celestials. And so Jude is comparing that to what happened during the days of Noah and then you can jump over to 1 Peter chapter 3. There it says, starting in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, when did that happen? Jesus was put to death in the flesh on the cross, right? When he died once for sins. Verse 19 says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So this is one of those verses that informs the Apostles' Creed when it talks about Christ going down into Hades and proclaiming. So the proclamation here isn't proclaiming of the gospel, it's the proclaiming of victory. So Christ goes down to these spirits that were in chains. The spirits that were in chains are the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah. You couple that with what's going on in Jude, and what we can conclude is that these celestials that went down onto the earth, God destroyed the product of their rebellion, the Nephilim in the flood, but those actual beings he put in chains in the middle of the earth. And so the idea is that they're now bound, they're bound. Christ goes down to show them, ultimately, I won. I just triumphed over you at the cross, right? But those celestials are in chains. Now, what's going on then? So if, if we're saying Zeus and Poseidon and Hades came down and mixed and mingled, but they're in chains, who now are these gods that we believe? Well, according to what we read in Josiah's reforms, Israel was worshiping Baal and Moloch and Ashtaroth and all of these gods. So what we would say is that there were some celestials who were disobedient and perverted God's good creation by intermingling with human beings and making half-breeds, but not all celestials rebelled in that way. And remember that it's after Genesis 6 that the Tower of Babel happens and God divvies up the nations according to the number of the sons of God. So now he puts these sons of God in charge of the various nations, not the ones that are in, in chains under the earth, not those watchers, they're being punished eternally, but there are these other gods that God then disinherits the nations and puts in rule over them. And we would say that those gods are the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the Ishtars, Moloch's, etc. We good so far? Yep. Yes. <laughs> okay. I feel like I'm learning. So like, I feel like you're, t you're just like, you're teaching me. Okay. Well, that's, um, that's cool. That's cool. So let me, I'm just going to throw some other questions. Go for it. The Nephilim. Yep. They would be half man, half God. Yep. Half so, angel. Half angel. Hercules, if you will. Hercules. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, I think Hercules was a Nephilim. <laughs> that might sound crazy to some people, but yep. I, that's what I believe. 
more questions. Okay, so <laughs> like, so when they died, are they then in chains, or like, would their spirits <laughs> then be great question? Because like, they wouldn't be able to come to heaven as a half breed. Like, where would they be now? Great question. So Dr. Michael Heiser does a lot of good work on this. So according to the Second Temple literature, like if you look at the book of Enoch, I just read from the book of Jude, which is divinely inspired and in God's word, and it quotes from the book of Enoch. Now, just a quick caveat, that does not mean that the book of Enoch is infallible or, or um, divine revelation. In, uh, what is it? It's in Titus when Paul quotes a poet, right? And he says, a prophet of your own says this. So there are times when the Bible quotes things that are not inspired, but it obviously shows because the book of Jude quotes from the book of Enoch in talking about the fact that these celestial beings are now in chains. And so the book of Enoch would actually equate the unclean spirits of the New Testament, the ones that go into people, right? Legion, if you will, and the various demonically possessed, that those unclean spirits are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim right? That's what the Second Temple literature that influenced the thinking of the Jews in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, that's what they believed. And I think that there's actually good linguistic arguments for that. You can read The Unseen Realm, he talks about that. And in his other book, just called Demons, he actually goes into that even a little bit further. Again, just like Michael Kahn, I'm not endorsing everything that Heiser teaches. I think he's a little bit closer to general orthodoxy than Khan is, but I have some issues with some of the things Heiser says as well. But so that's what I think happened. So at the flood, you have the physical bodies of the Nephilim destroyed, but because you're right, they're half-breeds, their spirits don't go into the realm of the dead because that's reserved for humans. And so their spirits wander the earth, which is why they're looking for inhabitants. That's why they possess people because that's what they're looking for. Amazing. <laughs> and the other thing that I would just say is that notice in Genesis 6 that there's a couple things. Notice it says, first of all, that the Nephilim were on the earth that day and also afterwards. So the question becomes, and I think Doug Wilson says that he believes that the term Nephilim just Changes. lived on, yeah. right? Now they're just talking about big people. I struggle with that a little bit because it does seem like you look at Goliath, right, of Gath and his five brothers— you look at some of the beings in the Old Testament where they seem to fight against giants. Interestingly, in Genesis, uh, what's the chapter when, uh, when Abraham takes his mighty men and they go off and fight against the giants who stole a lot? Like it clearly says he went and fought giants. And you're like, wait a sec, why isn't that in the Sunday school version of the story? So I think that probably what you had was you had a large-scale incursion at the time of Noah and those beings have been punished. And so you have this sort of maybe smaller scale individual things like that seem like a concerted unified effort to corrupt humanity and corrupt the gene pool. You probably have these kinds of incursions. And this is where you get the mythologies about Zeus who comes down and rapes one girl, right? There's even stories about Zeus becoming a swan and having sex with another swan. And there's some really messed up stuff. Like Zeus was an immoral sexual pervert. But throughout some of these stories, you get these thoughts that maybe there are on a smaller scale other incursions because the text does say the Nephilim were on the earth before and also afterwards. And that's a bit of a paradigm shift for you in the last couple of years because yeah. I remember you, when you preached through that, you were fairly adamant that the Nephilim yeah, I was, I was, was completely gone. Well, and so because part of my thinking was if the reason for the flood was to destroy the Nephilim, 
then we can't believe that the Nephilim survived the flood because that would say that God's judgment failed. So I do believe that the flood wiped out the Nephilim that were on the earth in that day. But if the flood was to judge the people who had actually done the crime. Right. But then on top of that, now you also have, because there are these other gods, and they might not have done it on such a wide scale, but there might have been individual moments, and who knows whether or not God executed the same judgment on those spirits as well. But let's be honest, these malevolent spiritual beings, when you rebel against God, Romans 1 is pretty clear what happens to minds that rebel against God, whether that's a celestial mind or a human mind, right? They get dark and they get more and more perverted. And so the idea that these gods who are worshipped by the pagan nation that they're jurisdictionally given power over, when they see good-looking women or whatever the case is, the idea that their lust wouldn't take over and there wouldn't be, if this is a physiological possibility for them, that they wouldn't succumb to that again. It seems to me like the simple solution here, Occam's razor, if you will, is that these celestial beings are prone to repeat the same sins. So then the demons that are deceiving people today, like last week we talked about like the mass deception of COVID. Right. Those wouldn't be the same entities that had relations with women back in the day because those ones are bound. But these are the other ones who just didn't rebel in that way. They're rebelling in different ways, playing a different game, basically. That's right. Yeah. If you think about it, what is the goal? The goal is to thwart the plans and purposes of God. I think they all know that they're not powerful enough to actually overthrow God. But what are they trying to do? I think they're trying to delay their destruction Right, which means that if they know, and I would just say post-millennial understanding of scripture is that we win the earth, then the more they can deceive and pervert the church and push against the plans and purposes of God's kingdom on earth, so they can see faulty theology, they can do all kinds of things that would delay the eschaton, so to speak. Because yeah. he has to reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool, and if they're his enemies, we always put enemies in terms of like Catholicism and is, that, is an enemy, and yeah, it is, but like cancer is an enemy, absolutely. Yeah. But also, literally, he has enemies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Baal, Celestia. Asherah. Right, exactly. And so like, the millennial kingdom, before he comes back and completes it, destroys death, he has to reign. The millennium has to continue until all those enemies are defeated too, right? So if they can delay being defeated, the longer they can do that, the longer this period of time before he, he destroys them and throws them in the lake of fire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now fast-forwarding to kind of bring in some of Khan's work. Khan's work, as we said last week, is sort of centered around this parable in Matthew 12, where as Christ's kingdom goes and as the banner, so to speak, of Christ's rule and lordship is spread, these demonic powers retreat, right? Because they cannot occupy the same land that's been conquered by Christ. And so insofar as worship of Yahweh and the true God saturates a nation, these gods have no jurisdiction, no authority, which is why when Josiah begins his reforms, the first thing he does is he destroys all the worship to these gods and reestablishes true worship, right? And so what you have, I think, in North America is you have we were Christianized, right? Dominion of Canada is written on our parliament buildings that he will have dominion from sea to sea into the ends of the earth, all this kind of stuff. But as our nation has then rejected God, we've lowered the banner of Christ and his kingdom, which then opens up the opportunity for these gods who once had sway over these lands, over the native people and you know ruled over them and whatever. They now have the opportunity to come back. We've welcomed them home. We've welcomed them home. And so let's just deal with some of these gods in particular. So you look at Baal. 
Jonathan Kahn does a great job at kind of going through some of the ancient literature about this. So what I, I'm not going to back up everything I say, but just know it's there and you can look up this stuff on your own. Baal is essentially a god of wealth and prosperity. And he's often depicted by his symbol, so to speak, as a bull. This is why when Moses went up on the, the mountain and he came down and they were erecting a, a golden calf, this was the worship of Baal. And so he is the god of prosperity and wealth who promises in exchange for worship that your crops will grow, that you will be prosperous, that you, you know, all that kind of stuff. Jordan, how do we see Baal worship in our modern culture now? Well, if you go to New York, the gateway to America, land of the free, American yeah. dream, right outside the New York Stock Exchange, which is the place where wealth and prosperity is really pictured in America. Go look right outside. There is a golden bowl. And then there is also a archway that is likened to the archway to the Temple of Baal, right outside the New York Stock Exchange. I have a picture <laughs> before I knew any of this. I had a picture of me grabbing that bull by its balls. Um, so like, Not by the horns. Like, interesting. No, like it literally just like, it's kind of funny because like I have that picture. So I was like, now I feel Little good about that. Little do you know that, that like, was prophetic. Like, right? it was like, yeah, that's, that's you. That's like, you. But I, I don't want to even finish yeah, the yeah, sentence yeah, yeah, that I, don't I started. Know, I don't know where you go with it. But like, it's, it's, it is a weird thing to be there. And I remember me and my friend Tyson, when we went to New York, going down that place. And I remember ha like having the conversation like, why is this here? And it's because it make it doesn't actually make any sense. It's in the middle of a road. Like yeah. there's like a little island in the middle with it, with it there. It's just like, this doesn't fit. Yeah. Like, but now I'm just like, oh, it's because they're worshiping the God of prosperity. Right. Like, and, and when you think about, so oftentimes what is it? So if following Christ means taking up your cross and following him and denying earthly pleasures and denying earthly goods and giving it all up for him and living a life of suffering and difficulty and glorifying God in the midst of it, then it does become a very real temptation when a God lures you away who promises prosperity, right? And, and what was one of the very first gospel perversions that we saw take root in the North American world? It was the prosperity gospel, right? It's this lust for prosperity and wealth that infiltrates the church and leads them after false gods. So New York Christians tear down the ball. <laughs> Seriously. Like organize, get yeah. rid of it. We don't need no fresh wind, no fresh fire. We need that bull taken <laughs> care of. Like. So, and I actually found that Jonathan Kahn's work is actually even more mind-blowing in the area. So Asherah is another pagan god that's named in the New Testament several times in the New Testament who linguistically is linked with Ishtar. Who Is this the one in Acts where they were making idols too? Is that the same god? Yeah, okay. yeah. Asheroth in the New Testament according to the Greek. In fact, there's a scene where because Paul is preaching the gospel, he's actually threatening the, uh, the idol-making business in Ephesus, and there's a giant riot that breaks out. And literally it says, we were just I was just reading this the other day, for hours it says, literally for hours, they're shouting, great is Asheroth of the Ephesians. And you're just like, really? For an hour? They're just chanting this thing? That's weird. Where else do we hear like ongoing shout down the gospel chanting? Well... We were just at the drag story hour in Ingersoll this last week protesting. There was an, a lesbian biker gang called the Proud Girls who were there counter-protesting. And literally, as we were just trying to silently pray and, and do various things, they were shouting over us, calling us haters, haters of children, all kinds of different things. But it's interesting because when you think through the worship of Ishtar in the ancient world, the priests of Ishtar were transvestite priests who were castrated and dressed in women's clothing. 
So literally, tranny priests were what the priests of Ishtar were. She was the goddess of sexuality and sexual perversion. Interestingly, worship of her always was accompanied by sexual perversion, orgies, sodomy, rape, incest, all kinds of disgusting things like that. This is actually why so much of the New Testament, when Paul, it, it, sometimes it seems out of place, like to our modern dignified senses, when Paul's like, therefore, you know, don't lie and don't cheat and don't have orgies. And you're like, whoa, like, like who's that? Who, that escalated quickly. That? <laughs> exactly. But it's because he's preaching the gospel in Ephesus and Galatia, places where Ishtar temples were, and these priests, and this is actually even why Paul goes on to say in Galatians, you know, he's actually making reference to the priests of Ishtar when he says, hey, you who are so uh, eager for circumcision, why don't you just chop the whole thing off? That'll really make God happy. The reason he's saying that is because to make Ashtaroth happy, the priests chop themselves completely off to dedicate themselves completely as as uh, then transsexuals to the worship of Ishtar. Jordan, tell us a little bit about how Ishtar was worshipped in the ancient world, because well, this is mind-blowing. Yeah, well, it just so happened that there public displays of worship were festivals and celebrations and what we might call as parades through the streets where these worshipers of Ishtar would dress in elaborate colors and transvestite men leading the way and homosexuals leading the way, celebrating sexual perversion perversion of all its trappings. And they just so happened to do this always in the summer months And the majority of the time it took place for an entire month during the month of June. Yeah, over the summer solstice. Summer solstice. And and so... And Ishtar's symbol of worship just also so happened to be a rainbow. Yeah. So you look at that and you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's weird. That's creepy, right? And this goes back to Ecclesiastes, right? There's nothing new under the sun. And so these ancient gods who have been deceiving people for all these years, there's nothing new under the sun. And it might take place under the banner of LGBT rights or whatever the the case is now, but this is just straight up old-fashioned Ishtar worship. Moloch is another one who's named in 1 Kings 23 there with Josiah's reforms. Moloch, throughout the Old Testament, the people of God are commanded not to sacrifice their children to Moloch. Moloch was the god of the underworld who demanded the sacrifice of children. And the idea here would be you sacrifice your firstborn so that the rest of your children are born healthy and strong and you don't die in child labor. God's people were always commanded, don't sacrifice your children to Moloch. And now... We think that we're so far beyond child sacrifice, and yet we are sacrificing children to Moloch at a scale that the ancient Egyptians couldn't have fathomed. When you're talking 100 million babies in America alone since Roe v. Wade, it's crazy to think. Depravity in our culture just got more scientific. That's right. And got more efficient because before you had to actually have birth, have birth, birth and bring the th- child, like, plunge a knife into its chest. Now you can just use some forceps. Yeah, I find it interesting that just after uh, when God's laying out His law in Leviticus, He goes through chapter after chapter of how the priest should dress, how the priest should act, going into the into the temple, the Day of Atonement, how sacrifices would. And then all of a sudden, chapter eighteen, it switches to unlawful sexual relations. It's like. All these things, and then the very first thing he addresses in terms of applying to the rest of people, not just the, is the, don't be sexually perverted. And I think, I can't remember what book it says, but it talks about like the depravity of sexual sins is that it's, you're sinning inside yourself, you're sinning against your own heart. 
it's rampant in our culture. And one of the reasons it's so bad is because it is worship of a whole different God. Yep. Well, I think there are two things that Khan's book I thought were really interesting. The first one was the pattern that we see from Israel and how they went away from Yahweh, how it was the worship of Baal, which was the promise of prosperity and wealth, which then led to worship of Ashtoreth or Ishtar, which was reassigning gender roles and sexual perversion, which then went into Moloch worship. And you just see that America and the West has fallen in the same way, yep. where we've seen the worship of Baal, which is prosperity, we don't need God anymore, to starting at first wave feminism and then the sexual revolution, which has then led to the worship of Moloch, which is offering our children as sacrifices. But then even how profound that parable is, you were just saying how the Egyptians and the ancients couldn't have fathomed how we do these things. And you, you look at the wealth and prosperity we have, the wealth that the majority of people have in having a phone, even homeless people now, most of them have cell phones. So like, even yep. when you think of the wealth that, and this worship of Baal and the sexual revolution is so perverse, like the things that are happening now and the access to pornography back in the ancient days, like you had to be a peeping Tom in order to watch porn. But now it's like, you literally just pull out your phone. You can have whatever flavor you want, you can. And then now just the scale of Moloch worship where we've mechanized the murdering of just millions of children. So that the parable of when the spirit goes out and then comes, comes back, back yeah. it's going to be way worse. And that we're seeing it in every one of those things. It yeah. is way worse than it ever was. And where I think Khan's work falls short is that he deals with these three that we've just talked about, Ishtar and Baal and Amalek, and he calls it sort of a dark trinity. I don't espouse to any of his eschatology or any of that kind of stuff. Because interestingly, in, in 2 Kings 23 that we read or that we re referred to, it also talks about Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And you can go through Chemosh. Chemosh is a god of the ancient Canaanites and of Moab. Chemosh is associated with the rise of population. So the idea there is that Chemosh was the god that you would sacrifice to if you wanted your population to rise so that you could raise up a great army. And it's interesting. So when you think of some of the evils that arise from a growing population, right, where you start talking about things like democracy, which I would say, I don't think democracy is the best form of government, right? And sort of the idea that I would call democracy the tyranny of the 51%. And so you look at this God and how they worshipped him. They worshipped him through, interestingly, they would take votes on uh, within the population on what Chemosh desired. And they would have people who would fast and pray and decide what it was that Chemosh wanted from the population. And sometimes it would be silver, sometimes it would be gold, sometimes it would be crops. And so the idea of Chemosh even is like the idea of the government levying from its population saying like, we'll take X percentage of your silver or gold. You can see some of that stuff coming out of Chemosh worship in the ancient Canaanites and Moab. You can look at this so even- I'm hearing you say that paying taxes is us giving homage and worship to a pagan god. In some ways, I would say that that is accurate. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like there's taxation in God's law as well, but not anywhere near what we're looking at here, right? And even the idea, uh, Chemosh worship would often, because they would pray to Chemosh for a rising population so that they could have a standing army. I think standing armies are also an abomination, right? And I think that nations should be guarded by militia, not by standing armies. So there's just all kinds of different things I can get into. But you look at, uh, you can do some of your own research on Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. But my point here is that there's nothing new under the sun and there are these gods 
that we are still worshiping and we're still worshiping in the same way as ancient peoples did. As Jordan said, it's just gotten more efficient, right? So instead of a 30-year-old who wants to become a priest of Ishtar castrating themselves at the age of 30, now you can just take puberty blockers and have surgery before you turn 16. The efficiency with which these gods are now being worshipped in our culture is ridiculous. So I say all that to say, when Christians are resisting the sexual revolution, we're not just standing up for biblical values. We are going to war against Ishtar and her false worship. And so I think this is just a paradigm shift for us. And I would just say, number one, it's a paradigm shift because when you know and you can name your enemy— it gives you power over your enemy, right? Fighting an unknown enemy is a much harder battle to plan for. But also number two, I actually think it gives you greater compassion for the lost. Because what it does is it shows that that kid who's taking puberty blockers, who's shouting you down as you are trying to protect children at a drag queen story hour, she's not the enemy anymore, right? She's the territory over which the battle is being fought. She is a hostage, a slave to Ishtar. And we are fighting against Ishtar and looking to liberate her. And I think it just changes the way you do battle. And it actually, I think, helps Christians cultivate the kind of hate for the principality and power of darkness that is waging war against our king, but love for the one who's in bondage to that, that evil power. That's amazing. We're going to wrap up there. Can I just give like one little teaser Easter egg? And then people can kind of like... No, you can't. In Genesis 6, so I just want to tease this out. In Genesis 6, it actually talks about how the sons of God came down. It talks about they go into the daughters of man. But then it also says that they corrupted all flesh. And that all flesh is actually used later on in the flood narrative to talk about all flesh was destroyed that had the breath of life in their nostrils. So that all flesh is not just talking about humanity, it's talking about animals, right? And so I just say that to say, I think that understanding this worldview also opens up the idea when you're talking about creatures in the world. That spiders are of the, of the fall. <laughs> no, I'm not going there. But what I am saying is that I, I think that there is, I think there's room for, if you think about that, what does it look like for a celestial demon to come down to earth and corrupt bulls? Or wolves. Or wolves, right? Or horses, Right? Do you get minotaurs and centaurs and and werewolves? Like, I, so I just, and I just, <laughs> well, and and so we can actually we can talk about vampires because they're in scripture, right? The Lilith and the Lilithu are are there. So I just say that to say, when you have this supernatural worldview and you recognize that we live in, in an embattled world, a world that's under siege, and there are principalities and powers of darkness that are constantly trying to destroy God's good creation. Now, you got to stay tethered to the scriptures, and it's fun to speculate beyond where scripture goes, but knowing that that's just speculation, but it does open a door to some of the things that I don't think science can explain in our world. So if you want to talk more about that, reach so, out to us and let us know what, so you, next what week, topics basically you want it was like, Next week, we're talking about aliens, Bigfoot, werewolves, vampires, Dude, magicians, we need like an episode Harry Potter. On each one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter is not a product of the fall. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Magic. I was going yeah, with yeah. magic. But yeah, David Blame. We're gonna, like this is gonna be great. All right. So reach out to us. Let us know what you want us to talk about, and we'll go into the weird stuff. 